Good morning. morning. I'm Luke. (laughs) I used to be the pastor here. Um, We'll see. We'll see after today, but um, it's good to be back. Uh, We had, Molly and I had our 22nd wedding anniversary on Friday. (laughs) Quite an accomplishment uh, for Molly, Uh, but it's... uh, no, it's good. It's good to be married, and it's fun, and it's interesting, and you learn lots of things. And, uh, you know, I learned a long, long time ago, um, really early in our marriage, I'm glad I learned this really early in our marriage, that um, it's bad to try to teach your spouse a lesson. <laughs> you don't do that, okay? So um, I used to think, you know, in my good-natured, um, trying-to-be-helpful way that if, if my wife or anybody, probably at that point, but if anybody uh, needed some help in kind of learning something that, and like communicating wasn't getting through and just saying something, then you would just like help them to experience it and then they could learn. So, you know, if they weren't quite getting that the shower goes cold when you uh, flush the toilet or hot, then you, when they're in the shower, you just flush the toilet, and then they'll learn, right? Isn't that kind of what you're supposed to do? And so I learned really early that that's a bad plan, and I've been reminded of that um, annually for 22 years. No, so you do. You get kind of these things where you're like, okay, that, that's not going to work, and we had these things too where... You know, people have personalities, most people do, and they, um, they just have these different ways of doing things, dealing with things, you know, and so um, early on, I had this, this thing um, in, like, when we had a disagreement or something where I wanted to just go deal with it right now. Let's get this on the table. Let's talk about it. What's going on? Why do you think this? What's, you know, why are you mad at me? And I just wanted to jump in and try to, you know, I can kind of become like an interrogator sometimes. And um, Molly, she's like pulling back, like, I need to think about this. I don't want you to talk to me right now. I'm not ready for this. And, you know, two different people have two different ways of dealing with things. And we just kind of learned that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm right and she's wrong. And so we just, <laughs> she's not in here. So um, no, we had to learn how to figure that stuff out, you know, like, how does this work? I'm, we're just not thinking the same way about how we're supposed to do this, and so we had to compromise and figure out our way of talking, and, you know, early on I learned um, that, uh, and I, I don't think that this was a big struggle for me, but it can be for some people, that you do not name call, and you don't, you don't, make the person the problem, you keep the problem the problem. I don't know if that makes sense, but sometimes you're in a, in a, a disagreement about something, and instead of like, hey, let's deal with this problem, you begin to say, you're the problem. And uh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work very well. Um, doesn't work in marriage, doesn't work in any relationship. And so learning some of these things about you know, how to relate in marriage you have this picture of how it's really supposed to work in all your relationships and how there are basic uh, ways, uh, fundamental ways to understand how to deal with people, right? How to deal with situations. And so 
uh, it's important for us as Christians to kind of grasp that there are two things, and there are more than two things, but two things in particular that I think are really important um, for marriage, but then translating into every other relationship. One is that if you want to stay married for a long time, um, gentleness is required. Uh, gentleness. Now, here's the thing. For those men who are similar to me, and there are many men that are not, okay, but those that are, they find the term gentleness repugnant. Just gentle seems weak and soft and wrong. Am I just me? Okay. I got one person. We, we misunderstand the term, okay? That's not what the biblical understanding of gentleness is. Not like this, this weak grip, you know, handshake. I'm just gentle. That's not gentleness, okay? Gentleness in Scripture is the willingness to, to not be offended. It's the, it's the sense that I, I am refusing to take personal offense at things that that you're saying or doing, okay? And, and I'm, I'm making sure that I'm not going to get angry even if, okay, and this is not just like give you the benefit of the doubt and you meant well and maybe you intended to say that something else. It's not just that. Even if they mean to be offensive, you still refuse to take personal offense and have gentleness. And so Jesus uh, epitomizes this. He is the personification of gentleness. He wasn't weak. He wasn't unwilling to go strongly and aggressively into an argument or into a truth or into a teaching, but he was unwilling to be personally offended when people were being offensive. So at the cross, he is the Son of God. He is, he is God, and he is being blasphemed and mocked and spit on and ridiculed, and they are saying, why don't you, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just come down off that cross? And he has the power and the authority to call down a legion of angels and destroy everyone in the place. And he would be well within his rights to do that because they were blaspheming God. But what does he say? You remember? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the, it's the, the height of... Um, it's the absolute perfection of gentleness. He's, he's not taking personal offense, even though it was meant personally. It wasn't as if it was like well-meaning. They meant to be offensive. They're trying to goad him on, and he says, I'm not going to buy that. And so if you can grasp that gentleness, uh, that'll be helpful. And the other thing is you're not always going to be gentle, and so the, the, you have to have forgiveness, <laughs> If you can apply that, these, these Christian um, fundamental virtues into your life, the, the, the issue of forgiveness that when I am, because I'm going to get angry, and you're going to get angry, and I'm going to say something offensive, and you're going to hurt my feelings, and there are times when you have to apply forgiveness. I, just, I, I am hurt by that, but I'm going to forgive you. And then you can move into restoration and peace and joy. And so here's what you have to understand, okay? The, the enemy, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. I'm going to start a series 
um, on uh, lie detector. I'm calling it the lie detector series. We're going to deal with the lies of Satan. It's one of his main strategies for destroying faith is lies, manipulation, uh, false information. Okay, we're going to deal with that and what the truth says. But we're Today, we're dealing with his other strategy, or one of his other strategies, which is divisiveness. If he can cause offense, if he can bring into your life a, a sense of, of, of disconnect, of anger, that somebody has said or done something that, that I uh, am unwilling to forgive, I'm going to hold a grudge, I don't want to deal with that, okay? He, he loves to cause division, and what does God love to do? Look at everything that we talk about in terms of Christian language and virtue and value. We talk about grace. We talk about mercy. We talk about forgiveness. We talk about restoration. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are unifying things, right? They're not divisive things. They're unifying things. They bring us into a right relationship with God. And as you apply them into your life, they bring you into a right relationship with other people, even though... It is hard to remain or stay in right relationships with people because we say and do offensive things and we get offended. And so we're trying to deal with this issue of, of that division. What I've been so amazed by in this church is, you know, having been gone for three months and coming back, I mean, I really did stay away. I didn't come. I didn't, I didn't snoop on you guys online. Said, so, Lord, they're all yours. And the church was healthy and unified. And let me tell you a little secret, okay? Sometimes pastors think that it all depends on them to hold it together. And if I'm not here to hold it together, it's just going to fly apart. And, you know, you think, well, job security. But, man, it's so good to see how healthy the church is, unified. And part of that is, okay, we got to get into the word, but part of it is this issue of this focus that we all need to have, which is Christ is our hope, our purpose, our joy, and as we keep our eyes on him, then everything else we can kind of deal with. But we're human beings, and we say and do hard and hurtful and things we disagree with, and we got to, you know, deal with that. And fortunately, we have teaching that helps us to kind of keep on the same page. Amen? So let's, uh, let's get into it. John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Let's stand as we read. Um, I've said this before, but it's one of my least favorite stories in John. Um, mainly because the, the main character is whiny, complaining, ungrateful. Um, and as we read it, uh, we'll, we'll, you'll see. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. It's a hard life in those days and any days, but that's hard. But when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? 
And the sick man answered him, I just hear the, the whine in his voice. Well, sir, I have no one to help me put in the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going down, another steps in before me. Like, I mean, I get it, but Jesus said to him, get up, take your mat, take your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, but the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I mean, you, you kind of get, I don't know. They asked him, who, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was. For Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he even was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Father, we thank you for your word today, Lord, as we open it up, hear from you, Lord, we're hearing directly from your heart, from your mind, from the life of Christ and the things that, um, that are so important to us. Help us to grasp, Lord, your truth. And we can't do that without your Holy Spirit coming and inspiring and, and giving us insight, Lord. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to move. Uh, Lord, would you speak through me? But Lord, even more than that, or at least as much as that, would you move through each and every heart and every mind uh, who's hearing, listening right now, that you would give insight, you would give the application, you would give the understanding, you would give the, the motivation, whatever is needed uh, to apply your word, your will uh, to our lives, Lord, would you make that happen? We, we're here ready, receptive, willing, um, Lord, but we are weak human beings who have a very limited amount of power and, and ability. Your spirit um, changes that. So we thank you that you are the teacher and you are the power that is able to change. So change us, Lord, according to your will, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, by way of, of just understanding what's going on in this story, you have to grasp the first sentence here. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That sentence doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually is infused with a lot of information, not just information, but, but perspective, understanding of the mindset of the people. So the feast of the Jews, he doesn't mention what it is, and it doesn't matter what it is. He's, John is saying 
There's a, there's a celebration of some kind. Don't worry about that. It's a feast of the Jews. And you and I have to understand that when John uses the term Jews throughout his gospel, he's not using it in the way that you and I would normally think of. Like you, we think of Jews as like all Jewish people, like people who are, are Hebrews, people who uh, worship God and uh, who are uh, historically and ethnically Jewish. Like that, that to us is just like one blanket term. But in, in John's um, terminology, he's making a distinction, okay? When he says the Jews, it's a little bit, a little bit like it's kind of, it's not necessarily intended to be an insult, but it's a little bit like these are the, the snobs. These are the people that think they're better than everybody else. These are the, and, and where that came from was that all the way back um, in, in Solomon's day, Solomon uh, was the last king who had a unified kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was unified under Solomon. But he was a mixed bag, okay, to, to say the least. He, was, he wrote Proverbs and he had a lot of good wisdom and God had blessed him, but he also, uh, you know, had a thousand wives. So and that caused all kinds of problems. But anyway, he sinned against the Lord. God said, because of your father David, I'm not going to split the kingdom in your time. I'm not going to judge you the way I probably ought to. But in your son's kingdom, it's not going to be the same. All the blessings, all the unification, all the unity, all the the riches, all the power, all that stuff, I'm taking that away. And so under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom split. And so it became north and south, right? And in the north, there were 10 uh, tribes of Israel. And in the south, it was two tribes. It was Judah and it was Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, if you go back and read the the book of Judges, you'll see that they had some problems and um, they did some really nasty, horrible things. And so they got um, almost wiped out by the rest of the uh, people of Israel. Okay, they... They restored them, they um, began to populate again, etc., but they were a small tribe because of some things that had happened historically. Judah had historically been a big tribe, and it was the ruling tribe. Who, who does the king come from? Tribe of Judah, right? And so they're ruling, and they're the most populated in that area, and there's only two tribes, and so that whole region in the south, that country became known as Judea, or Judah. And it's based on the tribe of Judah because they were ruling and they're the most prevalent, okay? And so what they had was the temple. They had Jerusalem. They had the right worship. They had all those things. They had 20 kings and half of them were good kings. Half of them were kind of scoundrels, but half of them were good. They had reforms. They had back and forth. And and then they were exiled to Babylon. But then they were allowed to come back and build the temple. And so they had that history of kind of being a kind of a godly nation. Well, the northern tribes, you know, the northern country called Israel um, did not have that good of a, pop, uh, a reputation. So they had 20 kings, but all their kings were wicked. Every one out of 20 were bad. When they split, Rehoboam was king in the south. Jeroboam was king in the north. Okay. He came in, he gathered all these people, and he was afraid that they would realize We don't have the temple. There's only one place where you can make sacrifice, right? It's the temple in Jerusalem. And people are going to realize, uh, we got to go back down there to to actually worship. And so he said, you know what? I'll just make a temple up here. 
And they created false temples, and they began to indulge in idolatry and all kinds of stuff. They're trying to still be Jewish, but they're kind of getting it all mixed up with all kinds of other things. And so what happened was, in the north, they began to have a kind of a downgraded religion. And so over time, the Jews in, G- in Judea, and that's why they got their name Jews, because they're, they're from Judah, okay? So shortened to Jew or Jewish. And so they said, those people, they're not really as good as we are. There began to be this divisiveness between the two. So let me ask you this. Where's Jesus from? You're like, I know this is a trick question. He's from heaven. He's from Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. That's down in the Judea area, but he went to... It's not a trick question. He, was, he lived in the northern area. He lived in, in uh, Galilee. That's where he was born. Ra- he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Galilee. He, was, he lived in Nazareth. Even the people in Israel, in the northern part, when they heard that Jesus was, was from Nazareth, they're like, you know what? We may be on the wrong side of the tracks, but he's on the wrong side of the tracks in the wrong side of the tracks. Like It's like this guy, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And so the people in Judea, and they have not just the, the Jews down there, John's calling them the Jews, but he's also saying the rulers, the leaders, the, the religious leaders, the priests, the, you know, all these guys, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they, they're going to be down south where they can be close to the temple. And they're saying, this guy, he comes and he visits, but he, he's not like us. So they had all these distinctions that they would make. And they would also make distinctions about people that were invalid. I mean, those, they're low, low class. Not, they're not just low class because they're poor. They're low class because if God really loved you, he wouldn't let that happen to you. He wouldn't let you be poor. He wouldn't let you be injured and, and uh, unable to work. Or, that's just like... And so they began to distinguish the upper levels of spiritual people and the lower levels of spiritual people and they tried to put everybody in their little place and if you didn't fit into the, the box that they thought that you should fit in then they just looked down on you. That's the, the image or the perspective John's bringing when he, when he says they went to a festival of the Jews and they went up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is it's on a hill, a, a little hill. It's not like a mountain or anything. Okay, it's just a hill. They don't go up to Jerusalem because it's elevated. They go up to Jerusalem. Everywhere in the Bible, when they, whenever they go to Jerusalem, doesn't matter. I mean, we try to correct people. I don't know if you do this. When they're going north, they're going up. When they go south, they're going down. Right? You, does anybody do that? Does anybody, is that a pet peeve? I'm going up to Springfield today. No, you're, not, you're going down to Springfield. It's south of here, right? Anyway, so, but wherever you were, you always go up to Jerusalem because it's, it's not because it's elevated. It's because it's holy. The temple is there. God lives there. That's where God is. And they're not necessarily totally wrong about that. God is bigger than that, but he does say that my glory will dwell there. And then the Ark of the Covenant's there and all these you know, things. And so they say, it's where God is. It's holy. It's elevated. And people who live in Jerusalem are like, we're close to God. We're better than those people. And so John is infusing all this stuff into the very first sentence. 
right? So let's get into the story, okay? <laughs> Jesus comes, finds this guy by the pool of Bethesda. Now, it's just like down the street, whatever, from the temple. It's close. He's there waiting. There's this, there's this uh, uh, superstition, okay? The waters would bubble up from time to time in the pool of Bethesda. And if, you know, they thought the first person who gets in there, it's like this angel stirring it up, and it's like the healing properties. And if I'm right there, then I can get in first, and I get healed. And so he's laying there, and Jesus comes by, and he knows that he's been an invalid for 38 years. And he says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, well, duh. I've been here for all this time. And so the guy is offended by Jesus' question. He's offended. Now, he's offended by all kinds of stuff. It looks like he's offended by um, the people who are able, more able-bodied than him that are jumping into the pool ahead of him because he apparently has something wrong with his feet or his legs, right? That's his problem, something where he can't walk. So they're jumping in. He's like, how dare you? You're more able-bodied than me. Why don't you let me get in there? How dare you do that? He's upset about that. He's upset. All these people milling around. There's crowds. Jesus kind of gets you know, sucked into a crowd right after he heals a guy. He's like, where did the guy go? So there's all kinds of people all over the place. They're not helping him get in the pool. They're just doing their own thing. You don't care about me. How dare you not help me get into the pool when it's all stirred up? And I, if you're the first person, you get to get healed. But if you're second, third, fourth, or fifth, apparently all the magic's gone or whatever. And then he's offended by Jesus saying, you want to get well? Well, of course I want to get well. Don't you see me laying here by the pool? How much faith does this guy have where he's laying here by the pool? I don't know. I just thought about this. He's laying there by the pool. Now, if you really believe the first one in gets healed, like wouldn't you just sit on the edge and like as soon as you see that, you just flop your body over into the pool? Wouldn't you do that? If you think that that's going to heal you? Well, he's not doing that because, I mean, if it worked, boom, I can swim. I don't have to worry. But if it doesn't work, I guess I'm done for. I don't know how deep this thing is. Anyway, so... He's mad. Here's the verse, James 1.20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He's offended by people. He's offended by selfishness of somebody else. He's offended by Jesus asking him this question. And ultimately, here's what I kind of concluded here. He's offended by God, that God would allow this to happen to him. How dare you, God, let me suffer like this for 38 years? What did I ever do to you? Why, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this, right? And what you're going to see, I believe that's a very accurate picture of his attitude because everything else that we see in the story. But what happens is that this attitude is uh, the decision that everybody has to make when they go through something difficult, something harmful, something hurtful, something painful, is that as soon as you come into contact with something that doesn't fit your expectation or hope or, or your desire, and you go through pain, you have to decide in that moment, am I going to blame God and be offended that God let me go through this, or am I going to continue to trust him and continue to praise him? That's your choice. I don't, there's no 
other choice on the table when it comes to painful situations. You either praise God or you blame God. And what happens is that those who blame God become bitter and angry and offended, and the world piles on that. And they say, yeah, how dare God let that happen to you? That's not fair. That's not right. Why would God, if he's loving God and you're one of his people and he says all this stuff about if you love him, then he'll take care of you and he's not doing that, then maybe he's not real. And the world will pile on that person who's offended that they're going through something difficult and they'll confirm your disbelief. Pain, bitterness, anger, all the rest of it. But what I see is that those who will trust the Lord through difficult situations have the most powerful witness of anybody in the world. You see somebody who trusts God, loves God, will continue to defend God no matter what they go through, and the world sees that, and they say, that's different. There's something unique about that. And that's choice. I don't, it's not just because of your circumstances. We see this guy, he was an invalid for 38 years. You go to John chapter 9, you see a guy who's born blind. And he's got a totally different attitude. When Jesus heals him, he is rejoicing, praising God. He is sticking up for Jesus like nobody else. I mean, it is amazing. The difference is a stark contrast. It's a choice. So Jesus says, you want to be healed? He's like, well, of course. And so here's what's interesting. It says, this is the pool of Bethesda. I think this is important. Bethesda means house of mercy. House of mercy. And so what's going on here is that um, the guy does not believe in Jesus. He does not have faith. I don't think he even has a right relationship with God at all. Okay? He's not a believer He's not somebody who's a good Jewish person who just doesn't believe in Jesus at this point. He's, he is not a faithful person. He is a complainer. He's angry at everybody. He's bitter. He's blaming everybody around him. He has no faith. And the mercy of Jesus is that even though this person does not believe, even though they don't deserve it, I'm going to heal them anyway. It's mercy. That's what mercy is. It is withholding punishment that a person deserves. Grace is giving favor to somebody who, who doesn't deserve it. He, this guy's getting both mercy and grace piled on him at this moment. And you'd think that if you're getting mercy and grace poured on you, that you would respond with praise. You just think that. But apparently it's not necessarily an absolute foregone conclusion. He also is going to heal him because this is the third out of seven uh, signs that prove that he is the Christ. And here's what that means. There are things that Jesus is going to do in the book of John that validate and confirm that he is the Messiah. He's going to talk about this all the rest of of John chapter 5. And what he's going to basically say is that you don't have to believe my words, just believe my miracles. If I can do these things, then you should at least give some hearing to what I'm saying. Because this is beyond the scope of what a human being can do. And even if you don't believe that he's God in the flesh, you've got to believe that God at least is using him to do this. They don't even give him any credit whatsoever. But he's saying this miracle, this sign, is one of the evidences for how you know that he is the Christ. And this guy is going to get healed, and he's not even going to, the miracle that happens to him is not going to convince him to put his faith in Jesus. Do you see why this bothers me? This story is... A little bothersome. Okay. So he heals him. And then right away, um, it says that these Jews 
find him carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, you understand what's going on here is that um, it, it's a deep issue, okay? They were exiled, and they were given prophets who scolded them relentlessly because they were breaking the Sabbath. It was one of the main things that they were, they were told that they were, they were doing against God. They were breaking the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. They were selling things at the, on the Sabbath. They were using the temple as a market. These, these are, why does Jesus have such zeal for the temple? I mean, this was part of it. They were, they were continuing to, to misunderstand exactly what the Sabbath was all about. So what happened was God cured them about this whole issue of the Sabbath to, to some degree. So now their thinking is, we got to get this right. We got to make sure that nobody does any work on the Sabbath because that's what the Sabbath is about. Partly, it's about not working on the Sabbath. But really, ultimately, spiritually, what is the Sabbath about? It's about worshiping God. That's what the Sabbath is really about. But not working was a way to pause everything in your life and focus on the Lord. So what happened was, they began to um, want to be right so much. Because you have to define work, right? If the, if the Sabbath is about not working, then you, what do you have to do? You have to define what work is. What is work? And so they began to come up with a list of all the things that might be considered work. So carrying something was on that list. You know, making uh, something out of uh, two to different elements, what Jesus did, he spit in the, the dirt and he made mud and he put it on the guy's eyes and healed him, right? Well, that's work because you mix two things. You can't do that. You can't um, carry anything. You can't walk so far. You can't, okay, so there are things that they were saying in their tradition trying to hedge themselves against this breaking of the Sabbath. And what ended up happening was they became so obsessed with being right that they were harming people in the process. Do you understand what that, that really means? They were legalistic to the point where they did not love people. Thank God we don't do that anymore. Right? Jesus dealt with that in the New Testament, and the church has never had to deal with that. Catholics have never persecuted Protestants, Protestants have never persecuted Catholics, Protestants have never persecuted each other over all the centuries of church history, thank the Lord, we've always gotten along, been unified in our pursuit of Jesus Christ, promoting him, making sure that we evangelize the world for the gospel and not getting into all these little problems with each other and trying to make sure I'm right and you're wrong and we're going to torture and kill each other. Because we disagree about how much water you're supposed to use when somebody's baptized. I mean, that's a literal thing that happened and has happened for many places all over the world in history. What does that mean? We don't care about what the truth is, what's right, what's wrong? Of course we do. But here's what I believe is that Satan loves to draw attention to our differences and get us fighting about it so that we take our eyes off of the purpose, which is helping people to know Jesus Christ. I'll always be a Baptist in my DNA. I believe that that's correct in some ways. What it means to be a Christian is understanding the Word of God. I don't care about creeds. I don't care about rituals and ceremonies and sacraments and those things. 
the Word of God, a relationship with God. That's how I understand faith. But to hate and to abuse and to harm people who come from another tradition or, or find their relationship with God through some other tradition, is that what God's looking for? We're going to beat up on each other so that we make sure we know who's right and who's wrong? It's, uh, it's sad because we get so distracted. And as Christians, the offense comes. We get offended by people who don't believe what we believe exactly the way that we believe it. And then, boom, we're done. We don't listen. We don't participate. We have no fellowship. And uh, it's exactly what Jesus is trying to address with the religious rulers of his day. This sense of being offended by these differences of interpretation. Okay, that's... Is it too much? <laughs> I've been out of here for 14 weeks. So I've got to let you have it a little bit. Okay. So, here's the thing that happens. So, as Christians, we get kind of caught up in these issues with each other, but there's another thing that happens too, which is, and this is not necessarily something you can help. People get offended for God. I think these guys, these, these uh, leaders, were offended for God. They, got, they missed the mark, but they were offended for God, and maybe not, you know, totally, totally wrong. You ever get offended for God? You hear somebody blaspheming? I mean, not just like saying the Lord's name in vain, which is bothersome enough, but like mocking God, mocking Jesus. And it's just like, whoa. it's not just fear. It's not just like, oh, I don't like that. It's distasteful. But it's sometimes you get angry. Like, how dare you? He doesn't deserve that. I mean, but the, the blasphemy that's in the world is just... I think it's getting worse. Um, there's a cartoon. Anybody hear about this cartoon they made? I think it's on Netflix. It might be on a different thing, platform, whatever, um, called Little Devil. Blasphemous. I mean, just literally, intentionally, blasphemous is about a, it's a cartoon, but it's about a, a, a lady who has relations with Satan, has a baby. And she's raising this child, and this child is a kid, I guess, in the cartoon. And, this, and the child is the Antichrist, has powers, demonic powers. And the whole theme of this cartoon is about this relationship with Satan and this person, this kid being the Antichrist and all the rest of it. Like, this is for entertainment purposes. You know, and you're like, it's, it's like, it hurts my heart, but it's, it kind of makes me angry, too, because little kids you know, or teenagers will get on here and watch this thing and, and it will desensitize them because the purpose of these kinds of things is to kill faith. I don't, you know, they don't, they, they can watch that and be entertained by it because they don't believe it's any, it real. Like it just doesn't, it's not at all real. This is just fake fantasy, fairy tale Christianity, the Bible, God, Jesus, all what you believe and worship. It's like they can disengage from 
the idea that there's accountability to God because they've been infused with this blasphemy. Like, we can mock God when he won't do anything about it because he doesn't exist, and you can just go on your life and do whatever you want. And everything that you see in our world spiraling out of control is a result of, I don't believe I'm accountable to God. I can do what I want. And you and I, I mean, to some degree, we get offended by that. Now, here's the deal. It should cause some offense. We should get angry. But here's what the Bible says. Man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. My response should not be to speak the truth in anger, trying to prove or to judge or to condemn. I mean, the the point is we speak the truth in love because we're trying to rescue people out of darkness. And if we get that mixed up, if we begin to, you know, seek to change people because we're angry, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think most people are like, okay, you're angry. I want to become what you are. Right? They're like, you know, I don't need that. But when we speak the truth in love, I'm never going to back down from speaking the truth, but I do want to love the people that I'm seeking to communicate with. It's a different perspective there. So they're angry. They're offended for God. I get it. So Jesus (laughs) finds the guy in the temple, and he, um, look what happens here. This, he, the guy is, I don't know where. I mean, he's walking around the temple. You would think he'd be like, praise the Lord. Thank God. I, just, I wish I could find the guy who healed me so I could thank him. And Jesus finds him, and he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, just pause and think about that for a second. What does that mean? He's been an invalid for 38 years, okay? He didn't, it doesn't say that he was an invalid from birth, You get what that means? He became an invalid some point in his childhood or or adulthood. What I'm saying is, the guy's probably like 50-something. An old man. (laughs) He, listen, in this time period, he's not going to live another 38 years. Not likely. Okay, if he's in his 50s. He's not going to live to be 100. He, he, so even if Jesus revoked his healing and he became an invalid again at that point, he's not going to be an invalid for another 38 years. What worse thing could happen to him, would happen to him? Not just death. Spiritual death. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Brother, you're going to hell. Your lack of faith, your lack of gratitude, your continued bitterness, your offense at God, you've carried that even with your healing. He says, if you don't change, if you don't return to the Lord, repent, you're done. Like you're, you're going to the bad place. And the guy, listen, Instead of being broken and weeping and thanking him for telling him this, and he's, he runs. You would think he's running. Like, oh, yeah, 
But he runs to find the people that are persecuting Jesus to tattle on Jesus. He's not jumping around telling everybody, Jesus is the one who healed me, and isn't he great, and he's the one, and he's got power, and he's got the message. He runs to the leaders to tell them that Jesus, I just found out the name that you are looking for. It's Jesus. You think, what is going on with this guy? He's offended. This is what happens in our world. And it doesn't just happen in the world. People, as Christians, will, will have this same response. People are offended by God. How dare he judge me? How dare he judge me for my life, for my choices, for my lifestyle, for the things I say? The things. How dare he judge me? We want... A little salvation and a lot of freedom. I want to just put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ at this moment, and then I want to live my life how I want to live my life, and I don't want God to ever say or do anything about it from that point forward. And he says, Do you think that's how it works? You are trampling on the cross. You've taken for granted. You're saying that you can crucify Jesus over and over and over? And he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. But he's saying your your perspective, your attitude, your desire, your heart has to be directed towards loving him and having a relationship with him. And when you have these choices and you have all these things that happen to your life and and we all have all kinds of things that happen in our life. We have the decision to make either to be bitter and angry and offended or we have the opportunity to be responsive, to be gracious, to be repentant, to be changed. And when we pursue and desire the repentance and the change and the relationship and the unity with God, something begins to happen, okay? And so it's a choice between the offense or the gratitude. We're, we're going to have things that are hard and hurtful. People are going to say things that hurt us. We're going we're gonna to say things that hurt others. We're going to have things that we don't understand. There are things that are going to happen in our life that we're trying to work out that don't make sense. But if you go down the road of bitterness, there's just there's nothing at the end of that road. If you go down the road of gratitude and faith and something begins to happen, godliness begins to be produced in you. So as James says, man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God, right? You know what does? Because the Bible tells us exactly what does produce the righteousness of God. Anybody? You're so afraid to say. You know the answer. Every time you're in Sunday school, you heard this. The answer to every question is Jesus. But here's what it says. Romans 3.22. Righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God is yours. It's available. It will change you. It will transform you. It comes through a relationship, through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what we're left with is this 
desire or choice or intentionality, whatever you want to call it, I, I can be offended. I can be offensive. But what I want is to be used by God. I, I want God to do something in me and through me. And that can only happen as I stay close to him, unified with him. And that, that happens when we receive him by faith and we begin to just dwell and walk closely with him. And your relationships with each other, your marriages, your kids, your workplace, your friends, church people, all those things, they're still going to be difficult. You still have differences and different opinions. And, but when we keep our eyes on Christ, we can have purpose. It's powerful. Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord. There's so much you can and are willing to do, and you're willing to use us in that to guide and direct us through it, Lord. We, we look at the story, and we see Christ showing us a model of grace and forgiveness and warning. We look at the, the man who let that all go through his fingers. Lord, help us to learn from that. Every day we're going to have a choice whether we're going to believe or we're going to reject or whether we're going to follow or we're going to go our own way. Lord, help us through the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, through the, the promises of Jesus Christ and the power of your cross. Lord, help us to follow closely, to walk with you for your glory, for our sake, for the world's sake. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to just um, encourage you this morning. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know where you have offense, you have broken relationships, where you're, you've been maybe in a struggle with God about something in your life. The altar's a place. You can lay that stuff down. You can just say, God, I, I'm ready for you to deal with me in this way. Amen. Prayer team is here. They'd love to pray with you. When you're up at the altar, you might feel a hand on your shoulder. Prayer team is here to just minister to you. If after the service you want prayer, you want to just go and just pray with somebody, they would love to do that. They would love to take you aside and just pray with you. If you need that, they're here for you. Okay, let's stand and sing.